you're listening to the Ambition Incubator podcast, and I'm your host, Deirdre Morrison. My thing is helping people understand how our brains work so that we can be better and do better in any area of life that's important to us. So as well as bite-sized brain science, I'll be bringing you interviews and advice from experts and guests who specialize in working with entrepreneurs and leaders to help them explore potential, possibilities, and ways to be more effective. And the best bit? We can start right now. Hello and welcome. Tell me, do you know the curious history of the color blue? Might sound like a strange place to start this episode, but I've got my reasons. There was a man called Lazarus Geiger. He was a German philosopher back in the 1800s, and he noticed that descriptions of color evolved in a very particular way in ancient languages. Dark and light or black and white tended to come first, and they were typically followed by red and yellow or green. Blue, however, was conspicuous by its absence. Now, does that mean that blue didn't exist? We can't really say for sure, but it's unlikely, right? The more interesting question is how people perceived what we now know to be blue before they had a word for it. Blue was often considered to be a sort of a grey or a green. But how does having a word for blue change our perception of the world? If we think about colour psychology and how colour makes us feel, we often associate blue with calm and grey with dreariness or depression. And I'm I'm well aware that that's not universal, of course, because we can also see grey as very sophisticated. And in English, at least, we can have the blues. But for the sake of argument, how does it affect how we see the world if there is no distinction between blue and grey? The words we use matter. They change how we see things. Our word view can affect our worldview. Now, we can compare this refinement and enhancement of the words to describe and perceive colour to the range of terminology that we have for our feelings, what we refer to as emotional granularity. The more range and flexibility we have in our descriptions, the better we're able to communicate what's going on for us. Today, we'll be thinking about adding another degree of granularity, another flavour for our terminology so that we can make the unseen seen, the invisible visible, and turn words into wisdom because sometimes the conversations that we need to have feel uncomfortable. They can feel like we've been thrown into alien territory. Living in a world where rationality and logic and analytical skills still dominate, it's easy to trust the quantifiable. It can feel sensible to steer clear of softer topics and less precise conversations about feelings and self-care and emotions. I started using the terms marginal losses and psychological negative equity to bring a new perspective to maintaining certain aspects of our personal ecosystem. But what are marginal losses? How do we accumulate them? How do they affect us? And what should we do about them? I found that when we think of them in this way, the sort of balance sheet of our own resilience and effectiveness that it can help lower our resistance to the things that we need to take on board. But we know deep down that we need to do this, but we don't necessarily want to be seen to need to do this. When we talk about it this way, we're talking about things we can measure, things we can plan and account for, and that can be reassuring. In certain ways, it's actually truer than you might think as well. Now, how our brain pays attention is 
a wonderful thing. When something novel comes our way, our right hemisphere sits up and pays attention. Basically, it's trying to work out if this new thing is a threat or an opportunity. And this is an opportunity, of course. It's an opportunity to add something to our store of knowledge, to learn, to enhance our tools and resources. Our curiosity is also a little peaked, you know. Uh, So unless you're familiar with the terms marginal losses and psychological negative equity, when I bring them up, the natural response is to wonder what are these marginal losses? Can I avoid them? Are they something I can calculate? And the brain is also connecting it to things that it already knows about and is familiar with. And while we're excited by novelty, we are reassured by familiarity. You know how when you have a team of top athletic performers of, actually, it doesn't need to be athletes, it could be business, it could be anything really. But it's often quite hard to find ways to make big improvements in these groups because they've already got the best equipment, the best support, the best coaching, the best nutrition, and there's not an awful lot left to improve on. Now, my particular sporting poison is the Tour de France, and for a number of years, I've been on the absolute edge of my seat watching it every summer. And at one stage, there was a British cycling team known as Team Sky, and they were they really dominated the race in many ways. And one of the ways that they managed to be so successful was that they put a lot of effort into finding ways to make marginal gains. These are tiny improvements, and it might have been more aerodynamic socks or slightly lighter brake pads or thinner paint. And, you know, I'm not even really exaggerating with that. But if you or I had thinner paint or more aerodynamic socks, it wouldn't really help us. None of these things in and of themselves make much of a difference for the average bear. And I'm a pretty average bear on the bike. But when you add their impact together for a team of top performers over the course of a three-week race, it might add up to a few extra seconds saved, 10 seconds, five seconds, even fractions of a second. And that could be the difference between winning or losing. Because marginal gains is a case of every little helps. You know, we're banking on this cumulative effect, the results of all the efforts that we make. And even if they don't look like much at the time, we'll get there in the end. That's marginal gains. But what are marginal losses? Now, they're not exactly a mirror opposite of marginal gains. They're more like a shadow side. They're far more insidious, actually. I call them the phantom menace. So even though we fear loss, typically we we try to protect ourselves from it. Um, we don't see marginal losses quite often until it's too late. You know, they, they kind of slide in below the radar and then... We wake up and we wonder why we need to lose 20 pounds or why we've got 20,000 outstanding on our credit card or why we haven't felt happy in what feels like 100 years. Over time, accumulated marginal losses can turn us from, you know, someone who's that person on top of the world to someone who is absolutely prostrate in a valley of despair. Despite our best intentions, and so many things start with good intentions, right? Life has a way of throwing a spanner in the works. Here's a simple example. I didn't ride my bike for a few months at one point. I simply didn't have the opportunity. I don't really remember why, but what I do remember is that when I finally did resume, I had a bit of a rude awakening. It didn't matter how hard I pedaled, I was not getting the results that I thought I should from my efforts. And we'll talk a bit more about how should plays into this later on. Sticking with the physical fitness arena, though, just because it's such a clear way to explain this, 
I've seen the same thing play out time and time again in our martial arts dojo. There'll be someone who's doing really well, attending every session, making great progress. But if they sustain an injury or they change jobs, maybe, or there's a new baby in the picture, they'll miss a few weeks or months of training. And then when they come back, really keen to get stuck in again, they'll realize how much ground they've lost. You know, how much harder it seems than the last time they trained. And that, that's difficult, you know, the ego takes a hit here and they'll be wondering why they're not as good as they think they should be. Unrealistic expectations, especially when teamed with seeing how much everyone else has progressed, is a kind of double whammy. And that can affect the ability and the desire to work through the journey back to where they were and go on again from there. And quite often they decide it's not worth it. You see, marginal losses can actually happen so gradually in our overall life picture that they're almost like an evaporation. And the things that evaporate are the things that cushion our creativity. They're the things that form the armrests of our resilience and a sort of a support system for our souls. And of course, they really play into maintaining our health and relationships too. Now, no doubt there's a big question hanging in the air for you right now, and that'd be why. Why do we accumulate these losses? There's got to be a reason, right? Okay, so I know better than to assume anything about anyone else's life experience or what they brought with them from childhood. But typically we associate childhood with being a bit more carefree, having more time to play, having less responsibility, fewer bills. I'm lucky enough to be able to say that mine was like that. And what I want to get across here is that what we grew up with is often what we assume for ourselves it's a kind of foundation or baseline that we have never had to do without. If we had time to play with friends, relax, read, be with our pets, make mud pies, whatever it was that allowed us to just be ourselves and process what was going on in the world, then we don't always notice what that made possible for us, what it supported in our personal ecosystem, because we've never tried to do it without it. You know, they say that we don't stop playing because we get old. They say that we get old because we stop playing. And that's a true story. And I'm going to tell you another true story, actually. I was young, strong, healthy, happy, successful, all the rest of it. But I managed to accumulate marginal losses enough to create what I would refer to as an impact event in my life. Now, why did I accumulate those losses and end up going from being at the top of that mountain to being on that valley floor? That is a great question. Why didn't I just see what was going on and stop it all? Another great question. And I wish I had. But then again, I didn't know then what I know now. And I'm pretty sure it would have been a very different story if I did. And that's probably why I'm sharing this. When we're doing a passable job of adulting, when it looks okay on the outside, then more often than not, we're assumed capable until proved incompetent. We're grown-ups and we make our own choices, right? No one gets to make them for us. And I believe this is right. But I also believe that we need to make better informed choices. And that's why, in my experience, we still need to have more open and frank conversations. And here's the important bit. Conversations that resonate. Conversations that we feel use terms and concepts that are true for us. You know, I could go down a whole other rabbit hole about the left and right hemisphere and we don't really have time for that today. But basically, 
why we're looking at describing this not as a lack of self-care, but as marginal losses. It's, it's a kind of ironic blend of the different ways that the two hemispheres view the world. But in doing that, it makes more sense to some of us. And that's the whole point. There's no point knowing something if we've got a Teflon coating for it. You know, unless it strikes a chord with us, it pretty much goes in one ear and out the other, right? Now, naturally, I've been very attuned to this concept of marginal losses ever since I took my personal trip to the valley floor. And in my explorations and observations, I see a few typical reasons that people accept and accumulate marginal losses. The first one is FOMO, fear of missing out. If I don't attend that event or take on that task, I might miss an opportunity. Then there's competition. And for those who never want to come second and are willing to throw everything at it every time. Of course, those two, FOMO and competition, are quite closely related and they can be understood as part of a lack mindset. You know, they're not, if, if they're not in total opposition to it, they're at least in very strong tension with the idea that we can have enough, that things are going to be okay, that, you know, you can have abundance. The next thing that I would see a lot is expectations. And expectations are not just things that other people have of us. We also have them of ourselves too. And quite often, the expectations that we have of ourselves are higher, harder and harsher than those that other people have of us. Expectations are an incredibly powerful propellant and they sometimes play into the final category that I'm going to mention, which is identity. And for full disclosure, I think identity was my main reason for accumulating marginal losses. I wanted to do the whole Wonder Woman thing, you know, have kids, run a business, never miss a beat, no interruption to normal service. Because, you know, I was better than that. <laughs> but let me tell you here and now, I was not. But such is the invincibility of youth. You know, we think we can do all these things until, of course, we realise that we can't. And the question that I'd like to ask you here is if one of those reasons jumps out at you as a reason that you might accumulate marginal losses, which one is it? Or maybe it's something else entirely. I'd also love to hear about that. But here's food for thought. You know, we rightly celebrate someone who's reached the top of their personal mountain and we acknowledge their work and their achievements. But what about someone who has been there and has also made the trip to the valley floor and is now making their way back up again? How are their steps along the road back seen, acknowledged and categorised? Do we judge or do we embrace their progress? It's a good question, isn't it? You know, I saw a post on LinkedIn recently um, by a, a guy who was probably around 30 and he proudly proclaimed at the top of his post that weekends are for the week. It's very catchy, right? Very Gordon Gecko. Anyone who remembers that movie, Wall Street and, you know, lunches for wimps. Anyway, this latter day Gordon Gecko went on by saying that if you hadn't made it, then you didn't deserve those days off. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack in there, but, you know, I just wanted to mention him because I feel for him and the journey that's possibly in store for him as he cuts some wisdom teeth. Let's look at some of the ways and points in time that we can start accumulating marginal losses. Being an entrepreneur, for a start, that can be hard, right? There's a lot of wear and tear involved. New babies in the picture can be hard. Not having family close by to help that can be hard. <laughs> and of course, maybe for some people, having family close by can be hard. If you don't feel financially or professionally secure, that can be hard. Also, you know, being on call 24-7, whether that's as a parent, a carer or a business owner, 
each of these examples, they can undermine certain things that we took for granted. And to keep all of the balls in the air, some things end up being sidelined. Socialising, cinema, reading time, healthy eating, exercise. They're just not that important right now, you know. There are so many urgent things and we just want to, we have this feeling that we should knuckle down and stay on top of the essentials. Here's something else that's worth noting. Many of those little things that we let go of as we accumulate our marginal losses, they're actually providing vital support, not just for our quality of life and well-being, but also for our adaptability, our resilience and our learning capacity. Now, marginal losses, I know them pretty well. And what I know both as an experience and as an observation is that when you get to a certain level of accumulated accumulated losses, if I could say it properly, is that you can in, experience one of these impact events. You know, we can no longer hold on and do it. The balls come crashing out of the air, the spinning plates, well, they're toast. And we might have a sense that something needed to change before this happens. But then, you know, this asteroid hits and there you are, you're sitting at the bottom of this valley and things are pretty bleak down there. And that's often the point actually where we witness breakups, breakdowns and other bad things, sometimes even full on burnouts. For me, it was a little bit like a a very numb feeling. Um, I found myself staring at my own face in the mirror one morning and realizing that it was like there was a ghost there. And here's the thing, when you hit the bottom of that valley, the marginal losses, they have taken their toll, whether that's emotionally, socially, professionally, personally, or all of the above. And this is where the next bit comes in. The bit that I haven't really mentioned yet, the psychological negative equity. Now, if you haven't ever heard the term negative equity, it's a phrase that would send a cold chill down the spine of a homeowner. If you're in negative equity, it means that you owe more on your house than it's currently worth. Hence the term psychological negative equity, because there is a gap between where we are and where we want to be. We have a shortfall in those two things. So. Unfortunately, there are not many shortcuts back out of a situation like this. I wish I could tell you that there were. A lot of things are different when we find ourselves in that situation on that valley floor. And one of the things we might be wondering is how we got there. And at some point, we have to start considering the road back. Creating change is not always easy, even at the best of times. Even if we start from a place where everything is good and we're on an even keel and we have the bandwidth to feel brave enough to suck at something new. It can still be a challenge to create the change that we're looking for. It can take time and persistence, even when we have the best of intentions, a strong will, and plenty of inner personal resources. Having to regain or rebuild something that we already had, to redo something that we already did, that is a special kind of soul destroying, especially if you're feeling very depleted by your experience and the accumulation of marginal losses anyway. You know, just to look at a couple of everyday examples, say you've spent time setting up the perfect spreadsheet designed to capture and calculate and do all the things, but for some reason, your colleagues keep tweaking it. And by tweaking, I mean breaking. So all that work that you've put in has to be redone. 
and worse, you've now got to sort out all the data that wasn't sorted properly. So that's extra work on top of that. Or away from the professional environment, if you've ever spent time and energy cleaning the kitchen, making sure everything was where it should be and it's all nice and tidy, and then you leave the room for 10 minutes and you come back and it looks like there's been a hurricane. Every dish in the place has been used. All the stuff is out of the fridge. The dog's bowl is upside down. (laughs) In that moment, you might want to explode. You might want to silently fume or you might feel like a balloon deflating. But my guess is that the real underlying thing that's going on for you is a deeply rooted sense of how unfair it is. You know, you've already used your precious energy to do this work and now you've got to do it again. That can be a sinking feeling. So imagine how that feels for someone who's on the bottom of that valley when they consider the road back and realize that the work ahead to get back to where they want to be is probably mostly their own doing. You know, they made choices. They said yes to things. They said no to things. And now here they are. That can produce a lot of emotional turmoil. It can be terrifying. Recognizing the fears that underpin this terror is important. You know, maybe we fear that we can never recapture what we had. That in seeing these marginal losses as an aggregate, we recognize our mindlessness. That we did this to ourselves and maybe we did stuff to other people too along the way. And that can make us feel like we're stupid or guilty or hopeless or any other number of things that are not pleasant to be feeling. Recovery, and this is a form of recovery, this journey back, it's not always straightforward. But we need to know that that's okay, that we need to be as kind to ourselves as we would to the person that we love the most, even if we're really angry with ourselves, which quite often we are. We need to remember that it's okay to drop our expectations in favour of our needs. And expectations, by the way, can be some of the least logical factors in our entire thought architecture. And if you want to start spreadsheeting something for cause and effect, this is actually a really good place to start. There's a a quote from Jane McGonigal's book, Super Better, where she tells the story of her recovery from a brain injury. And this quote always stayed with me. You're stronger than you know. You're surrounded by potential allies. And you are the hero of your own story. Now, that can hit all of us in different ways. But one of the things I love about it is that it reminds me that we don't always feel strong. And it's good to know that that's not just us. You know, even if we don't feel strong in this moment, it doesn't make us weaker than average. And we do need allies. But interestingly, our allies are not always the same as our loved ones. We need people who either understand the experience or are able to give us space to explore and understand it. And sometimes, sometimes we need a professional to support us here because unpacking this can be a lot. But at the end of the day, all the allies in the world, professional or otherwise, cannot make this journey for us. We must do that for ourselves. We must choose that for ourselves. And we must also choose our revised destination because it's rarely the same one. Too much has changed. You know, our outlook, our level of experience, our resources, and perhaps our healthy relationships. Our situation in general has often changed immensely, and sometimes that's a blessing in disguise. Now that we've taken all those considerations on board, 
let's move on again and let's look at the task of breaking the cycle, finding ways to interrupt it all. I'd like to share a set of questions for you to start exploring this for yourself. This is something that we can use to think about how we might spot and stop those patterns of marginal loss accumulation. First, we need to assess how seriously we take ourselves. And I don't mean that in a pompous, arrogant, self-important kind of way. It's more about whether we're suffering from a case of self-blindness. Do we actually see ourselves as deserving of equal consideration in any given situation, as beings of inherent value? Well, here's a key question. What is the value of a promise that you make to yourself? Let's unpack it a little bit because it might sound fairly bland and uninteresting to start with. But the promise or commitment that I make to myself, number one, how likely am I to keep it? Number two, how easily do I break a promise to myself? And number three, is a promise to myself or commitment to myself worth more or less than a promise or commitment to someone else? Now, you might be listening to this on the go, so I'm going to put a sheet with some of these questions in the notes and feel free to download them and work through them when you have time. But let's drill down a little bit more. Does the value of a promise that you make to yourself take precedence over a request from someone else? Now, we're working on the assumption that no one is asking you to rush out to attend a life or death situation here. You know, we're talking more about the level of feeling pressured into attending a social event, even though you know you need rest. Let's take an example. Let's, let's talk about Joe. Joe has been told to get more exercise and he's doing that by walking for 30 minutes every day at lunchtime, which is really the only free time he has to do it. Now, a colleague asks Joe to contribute something to a project that means he's going to need to sacrifice his time over lunch for the next few months at least. Does Joe go for his walk? If we add an extra layer to that, Joe's got a new girlfriend and he really likes her. And they've decided that they'll walk together every day at lunchtime. A colleague asks him to contribute something to a project. That means that he will need to sacrifice his time over lunch for the next few months. Does Joe still go for his walk? Now, we don't often think about this, but, you know, the value of our commitment to ourselves is quite often our primary protection against marginal losses. We might also refer to this, to the value of our commitment to ourselves as boundary setting. I find that a little defensive as a term. You know, it sounds like I'm fighting people off or shutting them out. I'd rather understand my commitment to myself as a human with equal value in any interaction or relationship. Relationships, physical health, mental health, they can all suffer through an accumulation of marginal losses. And the more we discuss this and explore it, the more chance we have of avoiding or helping someone else avoid the consequences of build-up that can happen over the course of months or years. It's been said that we don't choose our future, we choose our habits and they determine our future. Now, I only agree with this in part because for many of us, we're not making those choices consciously. We have to be awake to what's happening, more aware of what could happen in order to really make choices. In coaching, we always adopt the approach that our clients are creative, resourceful and whole. But, you know, if you put a blindfold on that creative, resourceful and whole person, they're probably still going to trip up. 
how might we think about making this journey back a little easier or ideally avoid it altogether? There's um, there's a book called Everything is Figure Outable, which, by the way, I haven't read, but I love the title because it gives us a sense of certainty that, you know, things aren't hopeless. A solution to our problems does exist, even if we can't see it right now. It's still figure outable. It's not always straightforward, though. And one of the things that I'd like you to think about is that this is a process that's undergoing constant refinement. It's a set of experiments, if you will. Understanding what things play what part in our lives. That can include understanding the roles of sleep, rest, nutrition, social connection, play, and so on. As Walt Whitman said, all truths wait in all things. Here's some things that we can do as we experiment. Let go of our static picture of a past perfect self and replace it with a picture that looks constantly to our own ecosystem. Recognize and remember that shoulds and expectation are often unhelpful and that they're often the remnants of thought patterns that are either unconscious or outdated. Realize that very painful emotions like guilt or shame may well feature on this road, the return road, especially when the marginal losses have made an impact on others, on family members, for example. Apply self-compassion. Again, this may not always feel comfortable. It may not feel like we deserve it. And if that's the case, you know, perhaps experiment with things like downtime. What happens if you get more rest? What happens if you take a nap when you, when you want one? If you don't assume that you'll get a lot done today, is the next day better? And is one good day better than two lackluster days? These are all good questions to ask. Time also is a key factor here. Marginal losses happen over time and quite often undoing them also requires time. There isn't an instant reset button. And sometimes we need to adapt to where we are now. One of the things I often talk to my clients about is the need for time in creating change, especially if we're trying to replace an existing behavior and get our neuroplasticity moving on that. One of the simplest practical demonstrations that I can offer is the toothbrush exercise. When a client is uh, being particularly hard on themselves about why they can't make change as quickly as they want, I ask them to try brushing their teeth with their non-dominant hand. That change is relatively simple, but it doesn't always feel like it. As well as the physical awkwardness, there's the fact that we have other things on our mind. So as well as brushing our teeth, we're probably you know, doing some kind of daily checklist and the number of times that people just plain forget to swap hands is actually hilarious. So a change that simple can can confound us that much. Why do we expect more complex change to be easy? And of course, if we stick to dental health, we don't expect to brush our teeth one time and have a solid set of pearly whites for the rest of our lives. It's the same with our mental health and wellness. This is something that has got to be part of our everyday. It's got to be part of our habits. So, you know, stock up on the mental floss because you're going to need it. One of the best bets that we have with the phenomenon of marginal losses is to interrupt our habits by introducing a new player on the conceptual field. When we translate things from individual events of little or no consequence into parts of a bigger picture then we can change our perception of them. We can make the unseen seen. And that's a key interruption technique. You know, an individual tile from a mosaic doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, we can hardly even tell if it's a mosaic tile at all or just a bit of broken crockery. 
But when we put it in context and we see it as part of a pattern or a bigger picture, it really changes our perception of it. Now, depending on where our path is headed and how prone we are to accepting marginal losses, you know, maybe it's not just a missed weekend. Maybe it's part of a trend that affects my relationships, my health, my mental wellness. It's a marginal loss. You know, maybe it's not just another cookie. It's taking me further away from where I want to be because it's connected to all the other cookies. It's a marginal loss. It's not just another missed dinner or birthday. It's, it's not just another snappish response because I'm stressed. It's undermining my important relationships. All of these things are marginal losses. The term marginal losses is a collective noun for the things that can eventually add up to become the straw that broke the camel's back. Now, I'm going to put the ACE tool with the resources for this episode. It's, it's a handy acronym to keep in your back pocket for when you need to recall some of the stuff that we've been talking about today. The Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu, he said that we need to let go of who we are to become who we might be. And adopting this approach can open the door to so much. It can help us let go of that past perfect self and recognize that none of it is static. Nothing about us is static. There are, of course, also times when we need to let go of who we fear we've become. And that's quite often by by our own assessment. You know, we might be afraid that we're too old, too unhealthy, too bitter. But by accepting that we are evolving and not static, we can stay in touch with who we are now and who we are becoming and who we're choosing to become. Being able to name how we got here and to identify the potential for further slippage, to be able to conceptualize that extra cookie or those extra hours in the office or that missed family event, to see these not as isolated events, but as marginal losses in a bigger picture, to name them as part of that overall phenomenon is worth something. It's the new filter that can change what we're seeing. Now, I hope this exploration of marginal losses and psychological negative equity has been helpful. And if you want to find out more about the sort of things that I work on, then by all means, come and visit me at NeuroCreative Studio or message me on LinkedIn. Let me know if this struck a chord with you. As I said, I will have some resources at neurocreative.studio or if you go to the, to the show notes and you can just download a file with some of the questions and the ACE acronym there. And it's also um, probably worth mentioning for someone who does want to go deeper into this, that I've just started taking expressions of interest for a very exclusive in-person retreat that I have scheduled for 2023. So if you'd like to join me in a small group of smart and interesting individuals for a few days of looking under the hood and fine-tuning your understanding of what's going on with your actions, reactions and interactions, then head over to the website neurocreative.studio and click the link to the retreat info. So thank you for listening to this today. It is something that I feel is important to make greater awareness of. And uh, thank you for spending your time with me.